Uh, at this time, I'd like to ask that you turn your attention to the Word as you open your own copy of the Scriptures to 1 Samuel chapter 3. I recently started an after-school kids class that meets here on Tuesday afternoons. Uh, that class is for kindergartners through sixth graders, and this past week, I introduced my class to two new people, Mr. Know-It-All and Miss Talks-A-Lot. Um, I actually had them draw pictures of them. Here's a couple of their photos that they made of Mr. Know-It-All there with the, the glasses, and Miss Talks-A-Lot saying, blah, 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 blah. Now, I, I had them draw these pictures so that I could hang them up on my wall, and they're in my office on the wall behind where I sit, so that any time one of these two characters shows up in my classroom, I can not so subtly point to the picture and indicate that a child has either become Mr. Know-It-All or Miss Talks-A-Lot. I am very personally familiar with both of those people because I have to fight really hard not to become those people. Uh, the passage that I'm about to read to you it is by far the most famous story from the life of Samuel. It is the one that makes all the storybook Bibles. It's the part of his life that's in every children's church curriculum. It's the likely part of Samuel's story that is spoken about more than anything else. But sometimes the stories that we have heard the most are the ones that we actually understand the least. But even though this story is pretty straightforward, don't do yourself the disservice of thinking that you've mastered it. The goal of studying this passage today is that it would master you, or to be more accurate, that the Lord, through his word, would master you. So please follow along as I begin reading, starting in 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1. This is God's eternal word, preserved by the Holy Spirit to point you to Jesus Christ today. Verse 1 says, Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am. And ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call, my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever. 
for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay until morning. Then he, began, then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, Here I am. And Eli said, What was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you, and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing over this passage. Father, as we have now come to hear the word that you have for us today, I ask that every single person in this room would have a heart that bows low before the Scriptures and is ready to hear. And Lord, we ask that even as you are communicating to us through the Scriptures, we would, like Samuel, say, here I am, your servant is listening. And Lord, we pray that you would use the word today to transform us. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Our approach to the passage this morning is very simple. We're just going to look at three points. Point number one, the point. Point number two, the prophet. And point number three, the priest. Let's jump right in with point number one, the point. There's a number of ways that you can discern the main point of a story, but one of the best ways is to look at what has changed from the beginning of the story to the end. In any meaningful story, there is something very different than there was at the beginning. And everything that happens between once upon a time and happily ever after is there in order to flesh out those differences. Some people would call, call that the story arc. The other day uh, in my kids' class, one of the children looked at my giant print Bible, which is a massive tome of a book, and he said, why is that Bible so huge? And one of the other kids said, because it has all of the stories in it. And they were right, but the Bible is also one story. There is one singular overarching narrative that God has revealed to us. It stretches from before time, before creation, all the way to the point after which this world will come to an end. Let me show you what I mean by looking at the beginning and the end to try to discern the point of a narrative. Think about Adam and Eve. In the beginning, we get the first act of the entire universe. And so we see that they were created and then they lived happily ever after in the garden, it seemed. Until that day when they ate the fruit of the forbidden tree. And at that point, the one tree they were not supposed to touch, they took of it and became rebels against the Lord. And for their rebellion, they were separated from Eden and sent away from the presence of the Lord. Genesis chapter 3, verses 23 through 24 describes it like this. When the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim 
and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. That's the closing act of Act 1 here in the overarching narrative of the Bible. It began with the creation and it ended with the defilement of that creation. And if you shift all the way forward to the final scene in the book of Revelation, you see in chapter 21 and 22 the culmination of everything that happened in the garden. Revelation 21, 1 through 4 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first, first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Now here you see the new creation. You see God once again dwelling with man. Those things are the same, but there is a difference. And what is the difference? The difference is how people are able to be in the presence of God. At the beginning, everything is great in creation, and there are people in the presence of God. At the end, everything is great in creation, and they are in the presence of God. But how do they get there? We find the answer to that in the next chapter, 22, 14 through 16. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life, and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. So the people who are going to have access to the tree of life that Adam and Eve were removed from are those who have washed their robes. What does that mean? That's something that Revelation talks about several times. We see, for example, in Revelation 7.14, it says, They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The Bible starts and ends in a very similar place. The one major difference is how people are able to be in the presence of God. Adam and Eve were there by nature of creation. They were made holy from the outset, and then they fell. Everyone who ends up at the end of the story in heaven is going to be there not by nature of creation, but by way of salvation. We will be there because the blood of the Lamb who was slain covers our sin, and there is no other way. And with this tool in hand to discover how we see the point of the book, the point of the entire book of the Bible is that Jesus the Son of God, the Lamb of God, would come to be slain and shed his blood for us so that we might once again be with the Lord, so that he might once again dwell with his people. That is one of the ways that you can discern the point of a, of a story. Well, having that tool, let's look back at our passage in 1 Samuel chapter 3. The chapter begins with a narration of the story saying, with his introduction, now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. Then I want you to jump down to the end and look how things end up. And Samuel grew, this is verse 19, and Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. So when we begin the story, 
there is a practically non-existent presence of the word of God in the land. It's not there almost at all. And by the end of the chapter, we're told that everyone in Israel, everyone from the northern tribe of Dan to the very southern city of Beersheba, every one of them had heard the word of the Lord through Samuel's prophecies. So what is the point of the story? By looking at the beginning and looking at the end, you can see that the point of the story is in the difference. It's about the word of the Lord going forth. The reformers had this great slogan, post-tenebrous lux, which means after darkness, light. And that's what we see taking place in this passage. There was darkness in the land. The word of the Lord was not present. And then, because of what happens in this chapter, the word of God is going to be spread throughout the land. God is going to select a messenger that is going to then become the mouthpiece to present his word to the people. Which brings us to point number two, the prophet. As we've been making our way through the book of Samuel, Uh, There has not been a single time that we've heard Samuel speak yet. This is a book named after him, and so far, we've heard him say nothing. And this is the first time that we're going to see him do anything other than, quote, minister in the house of the Lord. And when we arrive here at chapter 3, he's probably still a young boy. The word that is used here isn't distinct. It doesn't tell us. It's not diminutive. So he's probably not an infant at this point. He's certainly not a tiny little boy, but we don't know his actual age. According to Jewish tradition, they hold that he was 12 years old at this point, but he could just as easily have been anywhere from about 7 to 14. We don't really know. The only description that we get of Samuel at this point is found in verse 7. Look at this because it's actually really important to what we see taking place. It says, now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. Now, if you were here last week, those words might sound really familiar to you, because when this book was speaking of Hophni and Phinehas, we are told, they did not know the Lord. In Hebrew, it's almost identical to what is said of Samuel, with one difference. It's the word, yet. They did not know the Lord. He did not yet know the Lord. What makes the difference? Why doesn't Samuel end up just like Hophni and Phinehas? Verse 7 tells us, because the word of the Lord was not yet revealed to Samuel. Here's the first place we really need to pause and apply what we're reading. Romans chapter 10 verse 17 tells us, So faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. So in the first chapter, in this chapter, we are reading that the Lord spoke to Samuel verbally. He communicated to him, and it is that that saved him. But don't for one second think that reading the scriptures is any less a divine conversation than what took place here with Samuel. When God communicated to him, he did so audibly. When he does so with us, he does so on the page. We need to make sure that we understand God has given his word to us as an enduring message that he has given for all people of all time. So as we move forward throughout this sermon, I'm going to be paralleling the prophetic hearing of God's voice that Samuel experienced experienced, to the equally supernatural work that God has done in giving us eyes to see him in his written word. And it's clear in our text that there was a transformation that occurred at this point in Samuel's life. This is when the Lord called him this very night And verse 7 makes it clear that prior to that moment, he did not know the Lord. 
And after this moment, it implies that he does know the Lord after the Lord has made himself known. In other words, it was at this point that he went from being a good, obedient, Old Testament version of a church kid to being a person who genuinely knew the Lord and actually listened to his voice. And if you are a Christian, that's your story too. Because your faith also came by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Someone at some time preached the gospel to you. At some point, someone gave you the scriptures. Someone opened them to you. And the spirit of God opened your heart to believe and your ears to hear. You and Samuel were made to know God in the exact same way. Through the word of God. Now let's look a little deeper into the circumstances of God calling Samuel. There's a few details that I want you to notice about the setting of this event. Verse 3 tells us where Samuel was at this point, And it tells us that in contrast to where Eli was. In verse 2 it just says that Eli was sleeping in his own place. And in contrast to that we see that Samuel was, according to verse 3, the lamp of God had not yet gone out. And Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Now, (laughs) the lamp of God here, that's referring to the lamp that was lit in the tabernacle. It was supposed to burn all night. It was a form of daily worship. It would not go out until the dawn. And this provides us with the fact that this must have been early in the morning. It's a time before the light had actually burned out. But I believe it's also a metaphor for the light of God's word being so dim in the land But the word of God was not extinguished. Post tenebrous lux, after darkness light. And in the dim glow of that lamp, there was the sleeping Samuel in the temple. Now what's really interesting about this is that this is one of only two places, only two, in the entire Old Testament where the tabernacle is referred to as the temple. That's really interesting Because the temple is not going to be built for about another 120 years by Solomon, who's not born for about another 100 years after this point. So it's interesting that here he intentionally uses the word temple. I think that the reason that the wording temple was used was to reveal that God's presence was in that place. For that's what a temple is. It's the place where the presence of God is supposed to dwell even if that hadn't yet been built. That was the point behind it, and I think that's true because it's further fleshed out by including the note that says where the ark of God was. What was the ark? The ark of the covenant was the one constant place where the manifest presence of the Lord would come and rest once a year. You couldn't anticipate where the presence of God would be displayed or where it would show up anywhere on earth any other time. But this is the one constant location where they knew every day of atonement, this is where the Lord will appear. God was not in the box, just for clarity, but the box served as a sort of throne, literally called the mercy seat. In the New Testament, we get that word hilasterion, where the Lord would come and he would sit enthroned on the cherubim and nobody was allowed to enter that place except the high priest and only once a year. That's why it's so curious that it says that he's in the place where the ark was. Now it's debated whether that phrase means that he was in the tabernacle in general or if that means he was actually in the room with the ark. We don't know for sure. But being that the line of Eli failed to follow the commands of the Lord in every other way, it is possible that they had literally looked at the Holy of Holies and said, hey, we've got this kid, we need a spare bedroom, let's just put him in there. That is possible. However, 
I still find that to be pretty unlikely. I think it's more likely that he is speaking generally and that this is just revealing that Eli's not in the tabernacle and they looked at the tabernacle as their extra bedroom where they put Samuel. And so Eli and his family were in their own tent, but Samuel was living in the tabernacle where the Ark of the Covenant was. And this is when the Lord called Samuel. And the first three times, he wakes up and he gets ready to report for duty to Eli. Now, if you're a parent in the room, then you know you've, you've probably just had similar experiences to this. Your family, uh, your child wakes up. And uh, I have empathy. I, just, I have to say, I empathize here with Eli because this is exactly what I do every night. When my kids come into the room and they say something like, there's a monster in my closet or the couch turned into an animal and is looking at me or my feet hurt or whatever it is, I just tell them, go back to bed, just like Eli did. It doesn't matter to me what's going on in your life. It's in your mind. You just had a nightmare. Go potty and go back to bed. So for the most part, actually, to be honest, I just have to be honest. Ashley's looking at me. She knows this is not true. The reality is my kids have learned long ago not to wake me up because that's what I'll do. That's, they just go to Ashley every time. The, she hasn't slept in 12 years. So I empathize here with Eli because he doesn't know what's going on. He just assumes this kid's had a, had a bad meal and it's digest, digesting poorly and now he's having nightmares. But Eli finally realized this might actually be the Lord speaking and he gives Samuel good instruction about how to listen to the voice of the Lord. In verse 9 he says, Go lie down. And if he calls you, you shall say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. Verse 10. And the Lord came and, and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak, for your servant hears. This time, notice there's a difference. This time, the Lord literally goes into the room and it says he is standing there. That indicates that he is literally being there in a physical manner. We also see something really interesting here. We see that there is a formula which is used in the Old Testament to call prophets. What is a prophet? A prophet is the mouthpiece of the Lord. It's someone that the Lord would entrust with a message to proclaim God's word to God's people. They would speak the very words of God. And we see, see Samuel that is being called here into the ministry in the same way that many others had been through the double repetition of his name, Samuel, Samuel. That double usage of somebody's name, that is only found four times in the entire Old Testament. Four times. And we're going to look at them. The first one is in Genesis 22 when God called Abraham, Abraham. If you remember what Genesis 22 is, that's when the Lord had told Abraham, take your son, your only son, take Isaac up to this hill, and there you will sacrifice him to me as an offering. And as Abraham is obeying and is about to bring the knife down, it is at that point that the Lord calls out twice, Abraham, Abraham. It's also interesting that Abraham is literally the first person in the entire Bible to be called a prophet. The next time that we see this formula used, it's in Genesis chapter 46, when God spoke to Jacob, and he told Jacob, go into Egypt so that you will see your son Joseph there, and I will go with you, the Lord says. So Jacob, interestingly, is also going to act in the next two chapters, directly after hearing that, as a prophet. He is going to speak prophetically about what the Lord is going to do in the offspring of his children. 
It's also important that he includes that the scepter of the Messiah would be established through Judah and would never depart from him. In other words, the king is going to be from the tribe of Judah. The true king is going to be from the tribe of Judah. Now that's going to come into play a great deal in the book of 1 Samuel, much more so in the fulfillment of that in Jesus Christ. But we see here that this man who speaks as a prophet directly before operating as a prophet is going to hear that calling, Jacob, Jacob. And then we see once again the Lord do this very thing when he calls out Moses, Moses. And where does that happen? It happens in Exodus chapter 3 at the burning bush when Moses had been in Midian. He had fled from, from Pharaoh. He was fearful for his life. He goes out. He's there 40 years operating as a shepherd, literally just taking care of the sheep. And then one day he sees this bush that will not be consumed by fire. He approaches it and it is there that the Lord calls out to him, Moses, Moses, and sends him on a ministry of deliverance. And Moses is considered the great prophet of the Old Testament. And now Samuel is called by God using his double repetition of his name. And consider the message that was given to him. It was a message of judgment against the man who was serving as his own father at the time. Notice, I don't know if you saw this, twice in this chapter, Eli calls him my son. Here, this man that he's about to hear about is the man who operates like his dad. And if you jump down to verse 15, you see that the message that he received is very troubling to him. It says, Samuel lay until morning, then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. He didn't even go back to sleep. I have no trouble going back to sleep. I wake up, boom, I'm back asleep. This troubled him, and he could not sleep. He didn't want to say anything. He knew it was a terrible message that he had to recount to the high priest. Listen, speaking the word of the Lord is not always easy. In fact, it is often quite difficult and uncomfortable. But after his reluctance and the threat by Eli, Samuel tells Eli what the Lord had revealed. And in doing so, Samuel becomes that very morning a prophet. He is the mouthpiece for God, delivering God's message to the people. And then it continues and says in verse 19, And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. That is a very important statement. What that means is that every single thing that he prophesied, every last one of them, was accurate and every one of them came to pass. In other words, Samuel was a real prophet, a good prophet, a prophet who spoke the very words of God. Now, brothers and sisters, every single week in this book, I am going to tell you the same thing. I am going to tell you that this book is about a good king who is going to come and set up a good kingdom. And last week, we saw that this book is also about a good priest who is going to come up who is going to come and make atonement for his people. And this week we are seeing the foreshadowing that he is also the one who is going to be the king and the one who is going to be the priest is also going to be a great prophet who is going to come and preach righteousness and judgment. In Acts chapter 3, verses 23 through 26, Peter is speaking to a group of religious leaders that are Jewish and he says to them, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed what? These days. The days in which those people were living. The days of Christ 
he continues, are you the sons of the prophets and the I'm sorry, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Do you see what he is saying? That prophet, the great prophet, the one who is better than Moses, and the one that Samuel himself spoke about, that prophet is here. Jesus was the great prophet, not like the other prophets who spoke words given by God, but as the Son of God himself. He spoke truth directly, always in full alignment with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And what was his message? Matthew 4.23 says, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Jesus took his message to the exact same cities and towns that Samuel did. Jesus came to preach the gospel of the kingdom. He came to proclaim salvation from sin and death. The healings that he would perform were just pictures pointing to the fact that he was reversing the curse and he was bringing life, that he is a different kind of king. Every other prophet Every one of them, they were given a message to preach about someone else. They were all pointing away from themselves. But this prophet came to preach himself. As Peter said, from Moses and Samuel and all the rest, they were preaching of the Messiah. Jesus is the only prophet who has ever come or who would ever come who preached about himself because Jesus is the greater prophet. Which brings us to our last point, the priest. Once again here, Eli is going to come off very poorly in this passage. We are once again going to see him as the negative example, this time showing us how not to respond to God's word. First, I want you to notice all the way back up in verse 2, look at how he is described. It says, At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. This is just the beginning of a series of many occasions in the book of 1 Samuel where physical descriptions of people are going to be used as parallels to what's going on in their spiritual life. Eli's spiritual eyes were also dim. He cannot see the things of the Lord. Now, much has been made about his spiritual dullness, not realizing that it was God's voice speaking to Samuel. And maybe those commentators who say that, maybe those preachers who point that out are right. But as I said earlier, I can't really blame him for that because I don't think anyone in this room would have made the connection more quickly than he did. But he does get something very wrong. And we're going to see it really clearly in his response to the pronouncement of judgment. So let's first try to understand the judgment and then consider his response. Look at verse 11 again. When the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. Now this means, listen, This is the kind of thing that people need to pay attention to. This is the kind of thing they should not ignore. This is the kind of thing that they're going to be shocked by. This is going to be surprising. This is going to be the talk of the town. On that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him, notice this is directed at one person. I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. 
Therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. I have to tell you, I think this is one of the most terrifying declarations ever made in the entire Bible. By saying that there is no atonement or sacrifice for Eli's house, God is declaring that those people are condemned to go into eternity without being forgiven. This is essentially a promise that the house of Eli is destined for an eternal wrath of God in hell. Now, as a side note, anybody who has a problem with the doctrine of limited atonement will have no answer for this. Anyone who believes that God is somehow required to offer forgiveness and atonement to everyone in the same way will have to ignore this portion of their Bible completely. Because God made it crystal clear that for the house of Eli, there will be no atonement ever. And that includes at the cross. Listen again to how this message was received by Eli, verse 17. And Eli said, What was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and he hid nothing from him. And he said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Now, first of all, I want you to just consider the way he's so concerned before he knows what the Lord said that he has to find out about it so much that he curses Samuel if he doesn't tell him. Well, that's really interesting to me because at this point, it seems that he is concerned that God is communicating to him and not to Eli. He's really worried about the fact that he has been jumped over for this kid. But moreover, he knows that the message is bad news. He knows it's bad news, and we know that he knows it's bad news because he says, may the Lord do whatever that is in the message. May he do that to you and more also if you don't tell me. In other words, I know that there's a curse, and may God pour that curse out on you. If it was a blessing, then that would be good th a good thing for Samuel to say, may the Lord do that to you. He knows that it's a curse. And so he says, may the Lord do this to you and more also. And when told of the impending judgment of himself and his family, notice that Eli basically shrugs his shoulders and says, huh, okay, all right. This is very surprising to me. Because do you understand, like this guy, he, he knows the word of the Lord better than anybody. He knows the stories of the Old Testament. He, he knows the books of the law better than any, He should know God better than anybody. And when a prophet showed up to him in the last chapter and pronounced judgment on his family, even say that they would all be violently killed, he doesn't make any steps towards repentance. And now when he's told that their entire family is going to be destined to eternal judgment under the wrath of God, he basically says, que sera, sera. it's God, let him do whatever he wants. That's a man who has no fear of God. That is a man who has no concept of the power of God, because anyone with even the slightest awareness of God's power and his wrath would hear that and fall immediately on their face and plead for mercy. Anyone who had any comprehension of what it means to stand before the Lord and before his judgment seat without having their sins covered by the Lamb, they would do anything possible to have their sin forgiven while there's still time. Eli does none of that. Eli does exactly what he's always done. He hears the word of the Lord, and he goes on unfazed. 
there is more than one way to starve. Some people starve because there's no food. Other people starve because they're anorexic and they don't believe they need any sustenance that comes from food. We have been given the incredible blessing of God's word. We are saturated in it. You probably have piles of Bibles in your house. We have, if, if you are here and you don't have a Bible in your home, talk to me and you can get one for free this morning. I will send it with you. But we don't have any reason not to have access to the word. Don't starve yourself of the incredible blessing of God's word. But please hear me. Just reading the word does not save you. Going to church every Sunday and hearing the word preached does not save you. Memorizing the word does not save you. Knowing every single doctrine in the scriptures and being able to defend your faith through apologetics does not save you. There are going to be plenty of theologians in hell. Eli, the high priest continued to perform sacrifices. He continued to say prayers. He continued to read the Bible. He continued to prepare sermons and to bless people. But it is evident he did not fear the Lord God. He did not worship the one he claimed to serve. The word of God was not given just so that you can know stories. He knew all the stories. The word of God is not given just so that you might perform religious activities. He did all of those. It isn't just there so you can gain an understanding of how to function more effectively here on earth with practical wisdom. He gives Hannah practical wisdom. He knows some things. But the Bible was given to you so that you could know God, so that you could know the author of the word of God. God has spoken in the scripture so that we might truly know him. And you should know that living under the preaching of the word of God does you no good unless you respond like Samuel and not like Eli. Samuel listened and obeyed. Eli listened and shrugged it off. Those who belong to the Lord hear his voice and they follow him. And if you've been sitting under the word of God for decades, or if this is your very first time hearing it today, today is the day to repent and to follow him with your whole heart. So I would ask today that you respond just like Samuel. Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. If you come to him today, through the blood of the lamb that was shed at the cross and by the resurrection power that was in him that brought him to, to life, he will likewise save you and give you newness of life if you just turn to him in faith. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word and for the example that we have here in the scripture. We thank you both for the positive example of Samuel and the negative example of Eli, that we can see how we are to respond to the word, that we are to submit ourselves, that we are to acknowledge you, that we are to listen to you, that we are to hear what you have to say and put it into practice, even when it is hard and uncomfortable like it was for Samuel that day. Lord, I pray that if there is anyone here who is like Eli, who has heard the word many times, who maybe even has taught the word, somebody who has presented the word, somebody who is aware of the word and familiar with the word and knows the stories and could explain the gospel but has not actually turned and believed, Lord, I pray that there would be no one like that in this room, that they would turn and trust you now if they are in that state today so that it might not be said on the last day that they are cast into judgment. Lord, we just pray that you would please, by your mercy, allow us to have a love for your word, a passion for your word, a delight in your word, not just one of intelligence that we learn the stories, but one in which we know you 
and encounter you and become familiar with you and delight in you. Lord, we thank you that you have presented yourself to us in this love letter called the Word of God. We thank you for it. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.